as kind of a break from the whole long uh, memorization passage, my challenge for you this week was just to work on two verses near the end. We're almost to the end. And so Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is what we're looking at. Kalen, would you put that on the screen for us, please? And let's read it together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right. So We'll try it without the screen. Go ahead and close your eyes or look away or something, and we're going to do it again. This is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right. I'm going to start. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to send the kids out. Thank you for flagging me down there, Caroline. Little ones, you guys can head downstairs. Thanks for being patient. You guys have a good trip. I I hear you guys are taking a journey this morning on Paul's first missionary journey, so try not to get lost in the Mediterranean. All right, I'm going to start a sentence, and I want you guys to finish it with the last word. So Hopefully, you're, you're all going to get this. I mean, there are some variations, but I, I think everybody's going to get the, the right thing. So um, first of all, you've got to imagine me kind of like as an angry older brother speaking to my younger brother about something that is just really bugging me about him. And I say to him this, don't be such a jerk. What? I can't hear you, Nancy. A fool? Okay. This didn't work at all. I was thinking, don't be such a baby. Right? You ever say that to somebody, especially younger or smaller than you? Don't be such a baby. Don't be such a crybaby, right? You probably have said that at some point in your life. You probably haven't said it in a way that's meant to encourage and build the other person up. Right? We, we don't say that to each other out of love and compassion. Don't be such a baby. But in a sense, that is what... Paul says to us in our passage today, but he says it in a way to be encouraging and to build us up. Because he's right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's God telling us to grow up. Again, not like we would say it to our younger sibling, why don't you just grow up? But no, as a loving Heavenly Father, says, I want you to grow up. I don't want you to be a baby. We are called to grow up in Christ, to become mature. We talked about this last week, and uh, because I've I've talked about it many times in groups and in individual conversations, I realized this week that for some people it's maybe shocking, because you could conceivably go to church even for decades and, and never hear or internalize the message that you are to be growing in Christ, not just staying where you are, but maturing, and for your whole life, getting more and more Christ-like. That's what maturity for the Christian looks like, becoming more like Jesus. God does not force us to do this, though. It's not like we become a Christian, and then God gets the remote control out, and he's steering us and doing the throttle and everything, and saying, okay, I'm going to force this person to grow. No. He leaves it 
in our hands whether or not we will do the things that cause us to grow. Last week we read Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And I want to read that right now, just get us up to speed, and then we'll go on to the verses that come after it. So this is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. It's on page 978 in one of the Pew Bibles. If you were with us last week, this is real familiar. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greeding to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Last week, for the sake of time, I skipped over those two key words at the end there, righteousness and holiness. I want to say a couple comments about those before we move on to other ideas. The idea of being righteous is both a legal and a relational term. So legally, it would be as though uh, you're, you're on trial and the judge smacks his gavel on the, on the bench and he says, I determine or I judge or I rule that you are righteous, that you are innocent of the crime that you are accused of. It doesn't mean you're innocent in every way, but in this particular setting, in the, in the court of law, you are innocent. You are declared righteous. If we're talking about it relationally, we could talk about being a friend of God, being welcomed into friendship with God, or even better, being adopted into the family of God. We were once outside, we were once aliens, we were outcasts, and God brought us in. He did things to fix our relationship with him so that we could even have a relationship with him. If we are righteous in relationship with God, it means we are in right relationship with him. So we've got that interpersonal relationship idea of righteousness, and we've got that legal sense of righteousness. Either way, if we have any righteousness, it is because it's been given to us as a gift, not because we have earned it ourselves. So we saw that in the passage that we were working on as the memory verses for this week. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So if, if you have salvation, it's not your own doing. If you have righteousness, it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed is not a word that we would normally use, but it's just a fancy way of saying it's a gift. It's something that's, that's given to you that you don't deserve, and it's credited to your account. It's assigned to you. It changes who you are. In the case of the imputation of righteousness to us, we're really talking about a double imputation. 
Because our sin is imputed to Christ. It's put on Christ. It's given to Him. That's our, our gift to Him. What a great gift, right? We give Him our sin, and He gives us His righteousness. We've looked at this before in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where the language is even stronger. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the idea of imputation. It's not just changing a name tag or a label, it's changing who you are. It's like Jesus takes on our sin. In the words of Paul here in 2 Corinthians, he, he becomes that sin. Like he's so saturated with our sin that that defines who he is in that moment. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Not just have some righteousness of God that we become it. Our, our essence is changed. That's the, the great exchange. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness, and that is an amazing deal. I don't know if any of you took part in the garage sales over the last week. Last weekend was the big one with 127 garage sales, but sometimes there's haggling that goes on. Well, I'll give you this. No, I'll take now. Nah. You go back and forth, and you walk away, and you think, I got a great deal. Think about this deal give my sin to Jesus. He gives me his righteousness. Just amazing. The other word at the end of that passage from last week was holiness. That's the idea of, of purity or sinlessness, being uncorrupted. It's the opposite of being worldly, being like the world. It's like being like God. It's being Christ-like or godly. And you and I are called to live lives of increasing holiness, increasing Christ-likeness. Sometimes our culture uses the word holy almost as an insult or a derogatory term. And you say, well, that person is just holier than thou. And what we mean by that is that person thinks he's really great, holy and pure and wonderful, but he's a hypocrite. He doesn't see who he really is. Maybe in, in past generations, people would refer to as holy rollers, and that was meant to be something of an insult or a mockery. But God is calling us to holiness. So we should ask the question, how do we, how do we grow in that holiness? How do we become more Christ-like? That's what we're going to see very clearly in our passage today. And to transition us into that, we're going to read again the last three verses from last week. So it gives us the framework. So verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And one thing we talked about last week was that middle section, that be renewed in the spirit of your minds, that's something that God does to us. He does on behalf of us. We cannot renew our minds. God does that for us. We cooperate with him, we submit to him, we obey him, and then, but he does it for us. But the thing before it and the thing after it, we have more of a role in. We put off and we put on. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I would like to suggest that you find a blank piece of paper or section of your paper and you just draw a simple two-column diagram to keep track of some things. On one column, it's put off. 
You know, the column put on. And as we go through our passage, there are going to be things in the Scripture itself that we're told to put off or put on, but then other things will probably come to mind about you and your life and your situation. God might bring those things to mind. You can add those to your list, too, of things that you should put off or put on. When I think of put off and put on, I think of Mr. Rogers. Some of you are thinking, what? What is that all about? So you guys remember Mr. Rogers. He was a hero of my childhood, right? I loved Mr. Rogers. My mom loved Mr. Rogers even more. She wishes I was Mr. Rogers, right? That was the goal for me as a kid, to be Mr. Rogers. Didn't work out so well. But every time at the beginning of the show, he would sing his little song, Won't You Be My Neighbor, right? And he'd come through the door, and the first thing he would do is he would go to the closet, and he would take off his jacket, he'd put it off, hang it up in the closet, and then he would get out a sweater. He's usually that bright red one, but sometimes it was different colors. He'd put the sweater on. So he put off the jacket, and he put on the sweater. And he'd keep singing his song through the whole thing, and he'd go down the steps, and he'd sit on the little bench, and then he would take off his outside shoes, and the second one he'd always kind of toss into his other hand, right in the middle of the song. And then he'd put on the inside shoes. And then you go about the rest of the show. But every time, at the beginning of the show, he'd do the same thing. He'd put off, he'd put on, he'd put off, he'd put on while he's singing his little song. That's what we're talking about today. And we're not talking about actual clothes in the passage, but that's the idea of putting off a garment, putting on another garment. What are we to put off? What are we to put on? Starting with verse 25, this is our main passage for today. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's Mr. Rogers again, right? Neighbor. With his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now we think this is really elementary. We know this. We're no, we know we're supposed to be honest and truthful. We know that lying is wrong. We work really hard to teach our kids and our grandkids to always tell the truth. I mean, sometimes that's a really hard thing to convince a child of. And we know it for ourselves, too. But somewhere along the way of growing up and going through adulthood, there have probably been some times when we've tweaked this rule a little bit. We think maybe it's okay for me to lie in this particular situation because I need this job. My family is depending on me for support. My boss is not honest. My coworkers are not honest. The people in the other company that I'm competing against, they're not honest. There's no way I can make it if I'm honest. Or maybe we say, I've, I've grown up, I've matured, and I can now see the world in a more nuanced way. I used to see everything as black and white, but now I can see shades of gray, and I recognize that there are situations where it's not best. I would say it's not wise even. And God is the God of wisdom. It's, it's not wise for me in this situation to be honest or truthful. We tell ourselves these things and we convince ourselves of them. We think sometimes a white lie, or we might say a gray lie, is necessary and maybe even is good. 
in philosophy class, you have to argue about all kinds of silly hypothetical things that don't actually apply to real life. So if you've ever taken a philosophy class, you've probably had to uh, answer this kind of question. So you're committed to truthfulness and honesty, but somebody is holding a gun to your head and saying, unless you say this white lie, I'm going to shoot you and kill you. And you think, well, what about my family that I've got to support? I can't abandon them. Of course, I'm going to say this little white lie in that situation. What what would you do in that situation? Or what if it's somebody else's life at stake? What if you were uh, a German resident in the time of World War II, and you were hiding some Jews in your basement so the Nazis wouldn't find them, and the SS troopers, they knock on the door and they say, show us where the Jews are. Do you tell them the truth, or do you lie to them to try to save the lives of the people hiding in your basement? Now, while those could be interesting things to discuss in a class and wrestle through, none of us in normal life face questions quite like that. And so if we just go off on those hypothetical extremes, we're going to miss really what we're supposed to be doing with this particular passage. Lying in regular life is surprisingly easy. You can lie to your boss. You can lie to your teachers. You can lie to your spouse, kids, you can lie to your parents, parents, you can lie to your kids. But in this and many other passages, God tells us clearly to be honest, to be truthful, to, to put off falsehood, to put off lying. He doesn't give us an out. There's no excuses that we can make there. This is a command, and so... I would ask us, myself included, do you think you know better how to navigate this life than God does? You think that in this particular situation, you just have to say, God, I know you said this, but you just don't understand. I have to do this instead. Now, notice it. at the end of this verse, there's actually a way that you could reason it for a selfish motivation to do this. So it talks about, um, let me read it here. So let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So we're all part of the body of Christ. We're members of that. We belong to each other. And so if we lie to each other and harm that other person in lying because we're all linked to each other, we're harming the body, which means we're harming ourselves especially in a family and in a church environment, when we are dishonest with each other, we are harming ourselves as we harm the body. So if we were to take this first put off, put on, and just simplify it as a don't do this, do this, we would say stop lying, speak the truth to each other. That's what he's getting at. Let's look at another situation. What about anger? What are we to think about anger? Is anger a sin? Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So right off we see that anger is not necessarily sinful. It says, be angry. You have permission to be angry, but do not sin. So you can be angry without sinning. There is a righteous, a good anger. 
Does God get angry? Yes. God is angry at our sin. God is angry when his beloved children are harmed, abused, and taken advantage of, and all that makes him angry. And his anger is righteous. He does not sin, even in his anger. And so we are called, mirroring him, to be angry, but to not sin. It's okay to be angry about things. There are things in this world and in your life that should make you angry. But you don't have to sin in that anger. There's a, a couple ways that we could sin in that anger. First, we could be angry for a sinful reason. So parents, you can probably identify this with this. You're, you're angry at your kids, and you don't even know why. It's like they're just, they're just getting under your skin, and they're just every question or request or comment or noise from the other room, you just, just bugs you. And maybe after some reflection, you realize what you wanted in that moment or that week or month or however long it seemed is you just wanted some peace and quiet. You wanted life to be in order and to work well, and you wanted everybody to be like Mr. Rogers and be nice to each other. Is that too much to ask, right? And your kids are messing that up, and so you're angry at your kids. They're just being kids. They're not trying to make you angry, but there's just something in that season that just makes you angry. And you realize, hopefully, that what you've done is you've, you've made that peace and that quiet an idol in your heart. You want that more than you want anything else. You're worshiping that. And, and so when your kids are taking that away from you, robbing you of your peace and your quiet, you are angry and maybe not even able to understand it. So that would be an example of what I would say is a sinful anger. The thing itself is wrong. Or you could be sinful in how you respond to anger. So somebody could make you angry, and it's a legitimate thing to be angry about. Your spouse could cheat on you. Uh, you, know, you could be fired from your job. Uh, your spouse could lash out at you, could speak badly of you in public. Uh, your kids could intentionally disobey, you know, steal the car, crash it into a tree. They could do all kinds of things that would legitimately be reasonable to be angry about. How do you respond in that anger? Most of us will either attack the person in our anger or we'll kind of stuff it and try to ignore it and, and run away from it. If you've been taking the peace, Peacemaker class on Tuesday night, you're thinking, that sounds pretty familiar. So we've been talking about that over and over again in the Peacemaker class. Some of us, we naturally go towards the attack mode. Somebody hurts us, harms us, attacks us, we attack right back. Others of us, we run away, we stuff it down, we don't... We don't get rid of it. We just file it away, keep adding to that list of things that are growing ever longer, making us bitter, making us hard. Both of those are sinful ways to respond to something that could be legitimately a reason to be angry. Instead of these sinful forms of anger... What does the Bible tell us in this verse? So it's a little tricky because it's phrased in the negative. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So the opposite of this would be, deal with your anger before the end of the day. And I would say, especially in marriage. 
This is, this is the million-dollar piece of advice, right? If you're fighting with your spouse, arguing with your spouse, you're just at each other, butting each other in the head, don't go to bed angry with each other. Even if you've got to stay up for hours to work it through. This is life-giving advice from the God who made you, made your spouse, brought you together for marriage. He knows best. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So confess to each other. Forgive each other. Get it taken care of that day. When we do that, when we refuse to uh, attack, refuse to stuff it down and grow bitter, when we refuse to allow the day to end without dealing with it, according to this verse, we accomplish something. Verse 27 says that we, we don't give a foothold to the devil. Satan is going to play a larger role later on in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to talk about the armor of God and the battle that rages between God's people and the forces of darkness. This is just a little, a little preview of that battle. And it's the idea of a conquest. You think of, think of yourself as a mountain, and Satan's trying to scale the mountain. And he's, he wants to get to the top and plant his flag to claim you as his. I have conquered this mountain. And when you, when you sin in your anger, when you refuse to forgive, when you hold on to it, or you lash out in anger and attack somebody, all of those things, you are giving footholds to Satan as he's trying to climb up that mountain. Places to put his foot, to climb up, to try to stake his claim on your life. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, it's okay to be angry, but don't sin in your anger so that you don't give a foothold to the devil. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is really straightforward. So if you're stealing, stop it, right? This includes little things. Cheating on your expense account work, fudging on your taxes. Few of us would look at ourselves and say, yes, I'm a thief, but man, those little things are easy to fall into dishonesty. What's the solution to this? What's the put on? It's not just to put off the stealing, but it's to put on hard, honest work. And notice It's not even primarily about you. Laboring, honest work with your hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. So instead of taking from other people, stealing, a mature Christian works hard and prioritizes giving generously to other people in need. That's a mark of maturity? Do you want to grow in Christ? Like, do you want to be more mature, working hard, and giving generously to those in need? It's part of that. Verse 29, 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What is corrupting talk? Some translations would call it unwholesome talk. It's simply talk that corrupts and hurts, harms, messes up another person. It spreads sin. It distributes the poison and the bitterness to other people. It could be as basic as just telling a dirty joke, other coarse joking and jesting. It could be lying. It could be slandering, talking falsely to hurt somebody. It could be a little more complicated like gossip and how it pollutes and drags other people into that corrupt talk. How are you personally tempted to sin in your speech? What's the thing that keeps entrapping you? And you realize, man, I did it again. I should not have said that in that way to that person. This is a pattern in my life. This is corrupt talk. Will you confess that to God? Is it cussing? Is it swearing? Is it cracking jokes that cut somebody else down? Is it exaggerating in order to impress? Is it flirting with people? All of these are corrupting. They corrupt you, and they corrupt the other person. So rather than that corrupting talk, what are we to put on? We are to be speaking things that build the other person up and are appropriate for the occasion. Now, Some of you are like, yeah, this is great. I love to build other people up. I am built to encourage people. Now, every time you're in a conversation, it's just naturally flowing out of you to encourage and comfort and build other people up. You're like, this is my verse. I love this. I got it. And then there are others of us, and maybe we're probably split 50-50, where it's just, it's not natural. It doesn't flow out of us. In fact, we believe that we have the spiritual gift of criticism. We can discern when things are wrong, and in service to our Lord and his people, we must point out what is wrong, because we've got to deal with it. We've got to make it right and that is me and my wife and my kids, my church, my friends, you guys, you pay the price for that. You are corrupted when I exercise my spiritual gift of criticism. We are to be speaking only what builds the other person up. That doesn't mean you never correct somebody. That doesn't mean you never discipline your children or even discipline a wayward church member. You never confront someone in their sin. That doesn't mean that at all. But you do those things in a way, especially with a motivation, to build the other person up. This is mentioned or described as uh, giving grace to those who hear. Grace is that word charis. It's the word gift. And so our words are meant to be a gift, a blessing to the people who are hearing it. Are your words like water to a parched soul? Our world sucks the life out of us. And sometimes we walk in here on Sunday morning and we're dry and dusty from the desert of 
the last seven days. And we have the opportunity to be a cold, refreshing drink of water, a gift, a chorus, a blessing to each other. Maybe you could be a good steak for a hungry soul. It's been a hard week. You come in here and a brother or sister chooses to feed you with encouragement. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let's walk backwards on this. If you're a Christian... You are saved, you're secure for eternity. That's the idea of the Spirit sealing you. Right? So it says, Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are already redeemed, and yet your redemption is not fully realized. Someday at the end, when God makes everything good, your full redemption will happen. But you have the seal, the guarantee of that, the stamp of authenticity, is the Spirit of God living inside of you we work farther back into the verse, we learn that we can grieve the Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve when things are wrong, when we've lost, when we've been broken. In our regular earthly relationships, we can lose someone we love to death, We could lose someone we love just to a broken relationship. There are lots of things that we could grieve, and I wonder, does it surprise you to think of God as grieving? He has everything, and he can make everything, and he's self-existent, like he doesn't need anything, and yet he has opened himself up to pain and hurt, and vulnerability. The ruler, the creator, the sustainer, the the Lord over all the universe who makes the rules and holds it all together decided to be vulnerable, to experience pain, to be able to experience grief. That's That's a crazy thought to me. Who would choose to make themselves open to grief? And yet he did that. And he is like us in that. And we can become more like him as we walk through that grief in a way that draws us to him. God is not distant and detached. He loves and he cares for you. He knows knows you better than you know yourself. He chooses to love you even though he knows all that about you. And that opens himself to the pain, the risk that comes with any kind of love. He does this in order to love you. As Paul has just described how we are to love and treat each other. We're to be truthful all the time. We're to deal with our anger right away in a righteous way. We're to work honestly, share generously. We're to prevent any corrupting talk from coming out of our mouths, speak only what is good for building up the other person. I think we're meant to understand this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit in context of all those other things. 
that when we do the things in the list that we're supposed to put off, it grieves God. When we lie, when we speak words that harm another brother and sister in Christ, it grieves our Heavenly Father because He loves that person too, and He wants us to be in relationship, good, good relationship with each other. So it makes sense that this would grieve God. And then Paul's going to go back to his listing of things of put off and put on. And again, we've got this context now of this grieving the Holy Spirit. As we think, how, how else might we grieve the Holy Spirit or better yet, avoid grieving the Holy Spirit? Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness, wrath, anger. Dealing with emotions, how we respond to when things are wrong. What do we do with that? How do we act on those things? Do we stuff it down and grow bitter? Do we, do we reach out in wrath, let our anger go? Clamor, slander, malice at the end. That's all the idea of how we hurt each other with our words. The Bible is really clear that your tongue, your words, can be deadly, can cause great pain for somebody else. For most of us, we will do more harm to another person with our words than with our actions, than with any physical violence, use of a weapon, anything like that. We will harm each other with our words. Now, James, in his book, in chapter 3, he has some really direct words about our words in here. This is James 3, 8 through 10. He says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. When you phrase it that way, that makes sense, right? God has made our mouths, and they're to be building up, they're to be helping other people, they're to be praising God. And with that same mouth, we could be here singing praises to God, and then Minutes, hours later, we could be using our mouths to tear down, to corrupt somebody else, to be cursing somebody else who is made in the image of the one whom we were worshiping minutes before. It's not how it's to be. We're to be using our words for building up, not tearing down. How are you doing with that? Are you doing essentially what James is describing here. Are you using your words to bless God, but also to curse people created in the image of God? Let me read 31 again. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let me just focus in on the second thing in that list there. Wrath. Wrath is a word that none of us like, and yet God has wrath that is just. 
is just. He exercises justice in his wrath. Because God is perfect, and God is holy, and God has designed the world to be perfect and holy, and yet we have corrupted it. And the right response to that corruption, to that brokenness, is wrath and judgment and bringing justice. We know this because when we are harmed, we know that we should get justice. See it in in our young kids. One harms another, they have this built-in driving desire to see justice served. So maybe they react with wrath against their unjust sibling. Maybe they get mom or dad involved. Maybe they stuff it down and explode later. But we are hardwired for justice. And we know deep down in us that there are some things that deserve wrath. But Paul tells us to get rid of all wrath. If we go to Romans 12, 17 through 19, we see this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance is not mine, it's not yours. Vengeance is the right and the prerogative of God. None of us are completely innocent. None of us judge rightly. None of us can exercise wrath and judgment in a righteous way that God can. And so we must leave it to Him. That doesn't mean we don't discipline our children, challenge each other in, in sin. But we do not exercise vengeance and wrath. We do not try to even the score. We don't try to harm somebody because they have harmed us. Yes, we need to hold people accountable. Yes, we need to confront people in their sin. Yes, we need to do the hard work of parenting. But we don't take vengeance. We don't exercise wrath. Verse 32. 31 was all put off. 32 is put on. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All right, so it's pretty basic at first. We're to, to be kind to each other. Dark County Fair, excuse me, the great Dark County Fair is going to start soon. And if you've ever people watched at the fair, you see all kinds of interesting things at the fair. If you need a little bit of a homework assignment, here's what I would consider for this year. Go to the fair, stay in one place, and watch, and just see how many people are wearing a Be Kind t-shirt. Right? So if I just type it into a search engine, I get all kinds of options of Be Kind t-shirts. I've got a, a picture that Caitlin will put up there on the web for you. This verse tells us to be kind. 
Lots of people, we walk around the fair with a message of be kind. Are we talking about the same thing? I'm actually talking about something different. There's a surface level kindness, being nice to each other. And then there's a kind of kindness that only comes from a transformation of the heart. And God is concerned with the second one. He wants us to be tender hearted, to not just go through the motions of kindness, but as our verse puts us the next thing, tender hearted. You think, I don't like the idea of that because if my heart is tender, my heart can be hurt. I will be vulnerable. People can harm me. Yes, that's true. And yet God calls us to be tender-hearted. How do we get tender-hearted? Say that's the rest of the verse there. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we're to be kind to each other, we're to be tender-hearted to each other, and we're to forgive each other as God has forgiven us in Christ. Again, very familiar to you if you've been with us on Tuesday night for the Peacemaker class. To forgive means to cancel a debt. Anytime we harm someone or sin against God, we we incur a debt. And that debt In order for justice to be served, that debt must be paid. You cannot just cancel, ignore a debt. This is a a political thing right now. Some people are saying, we're just going to cancel a bunch of student loan debt. It doesn't work that way. Somebody has to pay it. And so if you don't make the person who took the loan out pay it, then somebody else, the taxpayer, they have to pay it. Because you just can't erase a debt. Even if you're the one who is owed the debt, if you erase it, you're the one paying it. You're not getting it back. It's the nature of debt. To forgive someone is to surrender your right to have the debt paid. You can look at it this way. When you sin against someone, when you sin against God, you give them leverage over you. So if your spouse has sinned against you and you're holding it against that person, you've got leverage on them. You can kind of force them to do what you want them to do and manipulate them in certain ways because you've got that leverage because of that debt. And if you forgive them, you're throwing away that lever. You no longer have the leverage against them. In the case of our sin against God, we incurred a huge debt that we could never pay. And God would be fully just, fully righteous to punish us for all eternity in hell for that debt. And yet he's also loving and merciful. And so God made a way for our debt to be paid for us, not by us. He doesn't just ignore it. Erase it. Can't do that anyway. He he allows in his perfect plan for all of our sin, all of our debt to be placed on Jesus. Jesus pays that debt for us so that we can walk away free and clear. That's the message of the gospel. It's the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
And just as we have been forgiven, our debt has been wiped out between us and God, then, according to this verse, we are to forgive others. The same way that God forgives you, or with the same heart, or the same motivation, or to the same extent, if you think that's even possible, that you have been forgiven, you are to extend that forgiveness to others. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean just writing everything off, ignoring everything. God still challenges us, convicts us in our sin, calls us to repentance. It doesn't just disappear. He deals with it. But we're called to forgive each other as Christ forgave us. So I hope, as we've gone through this, you've been adding things to your list of put off and put on. See, a lot of sermons, you get to the end and you're like, how in the world am I going to apply this to our lives today? This is, that's not a problem because the whole passage here is just one application after another. Don't do this. Do this. Put off this. Put on this. And so if, to, to wrap up things here, really all I've got to do is ask you, what is God saying to you through this passage this morning? What do you need to put off? What do you need to put on? Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to come to God and confess, here is how I've been sinning, I need to put these things off. Please free me from this. And do you need help with that? Do you need a brother and sister in Christ to come alongside you or you confess that sin to that brother or sister and they help hold you accountable and they encourage you, they build you up and they check in on you and they help you with that? And what do you need to put on? What do you, you're not just getting rid of the wrong, you're replacing it with the right. Getting rid of the bad, replacing it with the good. And do you need help with that too? Do you need a, a brother or sister to, to come alongside you and help you remember to be putting off and putting on? In a minute, we're going to sing our last song, Jesus Christ, My Living Hope. And Before that, I'm going to pray, and then Hannah's going to pick on the guitar, and we're going to take a minute and just reflect. And here's what we're trying to reflect on. Lord, what do I need to put off? What do I need to put on? And how do I need help in that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this very practical, very down-to-earth, like meeting us right where we are in our regular life passage. Thank you that you worked through the pen of Paul 2,000 years ago to write these things and you preserved them for us that we can be challenged and encouraged. We can be torn down and built up by your word. And Lord, we recognize that while you renew our minds, while you have provided uh, forgiveness for us and, and reconciliation with yourself and with others, you have done all that necessary work that you still call us to partner with you in your work of sanctification in our lives. So Lord, work in our hearts and our minds now and show us specifically, clearly, what are the things that you want us to put off, to put on, and how do we need help? In Jesus' name, amen.